If you've got your Bible this morning, would you go ahead and turn over to Hebrews chapter 10? Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to be uh, continuing our study of this letter and, and opening up a new phase of the letter, turning over a new leaf maybe in the letter. Uh, one of the things that we've been noticing, if you're, if you're new to this study of Hebrews with us, one of the things we've noticed over and over is that this, this letter is more like a sermon than a letter. It, it really it does what a lot of preachers do, and that's explain something, the ideas behind something, and then apply that thing. So here's why it matters. Here's what you should do with this thing. And so this author has been jumping back and forth. He'll explain something for a while, and then he'll tell you what to do with that something. And and today, we get, to, we get to the end, last week I guess, we got to the end of the longest explanation section. Some deep, hardcore stuff that we've had to think long and hard about to understand. Now we get into him telling us what to do with it. Here's, here's, here's the best way I can think of. Uh, this may not land well with all of you guys, but this is, this is me. So this is, we're, we're like halfway into the second week of August. And ever since I was a little kid, August is the longest, worst month for me of the whole year. Because it's the month in which you know that people are on football fields all across America preparing for something, but you can't watch it yet. The month goes on forever. It's a month that's given to training camp, right? Training camp is when you come in, you report, you get your position assignments and all of your equipment, you work out, spend a lot of time in the, in the weight room, you spend a lot of time in the hot sun on the practice field, you, you are working out trying to earn positions, there's all these battles going on to decide who's going to be the starting QB and who's going to be the second string linebacker, all of this stuff is being worked out. And you get, as a fan, it's also a, like a training month for you because, you know, you're keeping up with it if you're a real fan like I am. You're keeping up with it and you want to know who wins these position battles and you want to know what the, what the season is going to hold and so August is a month of, of research and preparation, right? And then September 1st rolls around. And teams actually hit the field. And the party starts, right? So this whole month is about prep work. And and September 1st is about enjoying the fruits of that preparation. Hebrews 5 all the way through the first half of Hebrews 10 is like training camp. It is, it is a deep and hardcore explanation of a lot of nitty-gritty details about Jesus, some serious truth about him that is, that is so beautiful, it is worth the work that it takes to try to understand it. Hebrews 10, 19, through the rest of the book, is where the party starts. Training camp is over. We get to play. Let's use the skills that were learned. That's the idea. That's what Hebrews 10, 19 introduces us to. And here, here, even in the very first verse, especially in verse 22, we see why we were told so much about Jesus being a priest in the order of Melchizedek. We see why we were told so much about how Jesus' covenant is better than the covenant that was in the Old Testament. We see why we were told so much about Jesus' sacrifice how we were told over and over again that it's once for all in a way that no other sacrifice has has ever been. Now, all of that work gets driven home to us and the place that he starts, because all of these things are true about Jesus, the place that he starts is with a call to worship. If this is who Jesus is, then what we're called to do with it is to draw near to God. That's where we're camping out this morning. Now, this is the first of several different commands that we're going to be given, all of which are drawing from this material on Jesus that we've been studying for the last couple months. 
uh, we're going to camp out on the next couple of chapters in, in a lot greater detail than we have in the previous ones. So, so I don't know if you've noticed this, but we're like two chapters away, or I mean two substantive chapters away from the end of the letter, but we've still got, how many months is it from now to the end of the year? Like four months? We're, we've, got, we've got several more months left in our study, and that's because we're about to throw the brakes on and try to, and try to camp out over these, these applications of the truth we've been studying together from the first part of the year. We're about to slow down, and I think you're going to see why. I think you'll see that it's worth our time to think long and hard about it. Where we want to start today is with this, this call to draw near. If these things are true about Jesus, then come to God through him. Make use of what he's done. That's the, that's the call. I don't know if you've noticed this, but we've actually been seeing this draw near word come up over and over in Hebrews. From the beginning, really, this is the goal of Jesus' work, that we would be able to draw near to God. Back in chapter 4, verse 16, we were told, Since we have such a great high priest, let us draw near to God. Then in verse 25 of chapter 7, we were told that because Jesus lives forever and he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek, all of that stuff, because of that, let us draw near to him, knowing that he lives to intercede for us. Chapter 11, verse 6 says something similar, that we have to have faith drawing near to God. And it isn't just Hebrews. I don't have time to see this this morning, but if, if you want to do just kind of a word study, I think what you'll see is that this notion of coming near to God is scattered all through the New Testament, and it's the goal of what Jesus did. When the, when the New Testament writers talk about why Jesus came and died, this is their answer. 1 Peter 3.18 is one of my favorite examples of this. Where he says that Jesus died once for all, that he might bring us to God. So, if this theme runs through the entire New Testament, if this theme was even echoed in the Old Testament with the psalmist singing of the pleasures that are in the presence of God, but knowing he was separated from that presence by the temple, if this theme runs all the way through the Old and New Testaments, then the question I think we're confronted with is, is, it, is this a theme that runs through our lives? Is, is the idea that we can draw near to God as central to us as it is to the writers of the New Testament? If, if the idea that Jesus died and rose again so that we could draw near to God is the foundation for all of the work of the New Testament, is that an idea that's at the foundation of our life as believers? That's the question that I think many of us would have to answer no to. If it isn't central to us, I wonder why not. I suppose it could be that we don't really know how to draw near to God, that it's a skills problem. But I don't think that's it. I really don't think that's it. I think there are things we can do to get better at, at praying, at, at communing with God in his word, at, at drawing near to him. We can, we can practice that. We can learn from people who have more experience than us. There's, there's things to do. But I really don't think that's it because ultimately it's not rocket science. The, the, the nuts and bolts of what it takes to draw near to God are really simple, and they've been the same throughout all the centuries. Communing with God is just like communicating with any other person. It involves an exchange. It involves God speaking to us and us responding back to God. And in the Bible, we trust we have God's word to us, not like any other book, a, a book that's alive, that continues to speak now, just as it's spoken since it was written, that it's not like any other book. That's what we believe. So God speaks to us there. And then praying is just as simple as responding to, 
to what's said in his word, to talking to him about what we're, what we're reading and what's being said to us, the nuts and bolts are pretty simple. You read God's word. You pray. You, you come to the Lord's table and reflect on your sin and your need for grace. You, you come to corporate worship and hear other people that you love tell you that this gospel is working for them. These are all of the, this is the infrastructure of coming to God, and it's pretty simple. It's not like in some religions where it's mystical and, and mysterious and something that you have to, to, to work towards, as in, something where the, the upper levels are reserved for the elites, those who can pay or work their way to it. It's not like that. It's not some sort of transcendental feeling that we're going for. My sense is that what keeps us from drawing near to God is not first and foremost a skills problem. First and foremost, our problem is that we don't believe truth about God and we don't have hearts that want what they should. Our problem is a problem of heart and mind. That's what Hebrews thinks too. What we've seen here and throughout is this command to come to God, but have you noticed what we haven't seen here is any kind of manual on how to do that? Even Jesus gave his disciples the Lord's Prayer to teach them how to pray, but the author of Hebrews has not been interested in doing that for his readers. I think he knows it's not rocket science. What they need is not a how-to manual. What they need is to be confronted with the truth about who Jesus is, to change what they think, and ultimately what they, what they want, to change their hearts and to change their minds. That's where this passage that we're looking at this morning confronts us. One of the best images for this passage that I read was from John Piper, who said that, that really at the heart of it, in verse 22, we have this command, draw near to God. But everything before that command and everything after that command, it's like hot coals surrounding the command to keep it fresh and warm, to keep our zeal, our fire for coming to God hot. What we have is some truths that show us why we can come to God. And some statements about how we should come to God. In what condition we should come to him. How we can, what Jesus has done to make it possible, and how we should. What should be true of us. The way I want to frame it for us this morning is with a series of questions. Because I'm just going to assume that all of us are not happy with where we are in coming to God. That, that we all feel like we could do better. And these questions are meant to help us diagnose what our problem is. Some of these questions are going to land with you hopefully better than, than other ones. Hopefully at least some of them will land with some of you. But I think that, that, that somewhere in this list of things that this passage gives us, all of us are going to be confronted with what needs to change in us for us to come to God and to get more out of it. So that's where we're headed. Five questions to help us draw near to God better. If you found the passage, would you stand with me? In honor of God's word, as we read together, this is the word of the Lord from Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to start with verse 19 and read through verse 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is God's word. You can be seated. Here's the first question I want us to consider. Do you feel 
distant from God? Do you feel distant from God? My sense is that one of the main reasons we struggle to approach God in prayer and Bible reading and in corporate worship, whatever, is that he seems abstract to us. He seems distant, maybe even unreal. You can't touch him. You can't look at his face and observe his, his, his reactions to what you say, his body movement or whatever. There's no nonverbal cues, right? He seems distant and unreal to us. And if that's the way you feel, if you think that's maybe one of the reasons that it's hard for you to draw near to God, then let me say, first of all, that, that you're, you're actually on to something. You're not totally wrong here. One, one of the things we've been saying all along as we've looked at Jesus as a priest is that one of the reasons we need a priest is that our relationship with God is broken. That what we were made for is a kind of direct fellowship with him that's life-giving, that speaks joy to us, that we thrive on. It's the kind of relationship that's described in the first chapters of Genesis where Adam and Eve are walking in the garden with God and communicating with him. What in the world? I mean, it's so mysterious. I don't know what that would have looked like or been like, but that's the story we're told as a sort of ideal. This is what you're supposed to, your relationship with God is meant to be. And then we have Jesus as a, as a little taste of what, our redeemed relationship with God is supposed to look like. Where Jesus, as a, as a perfect man, walked the earth in intimate fellowship with his Father, so much so that when he came to die, the greatest thing that he had to struggle with was not the pain from the, the physical torture, but the separation from this life-giving relationship that he'd enjoyed all of his life. That's what we're meant for, right? And we don't have that. And the reason is that we've sinned against God. That's not the label any of us would probably give to it, just intuitively, on a level of common sense. But that's what the Bible says is wrong. That we've rebelled against him, and that that has erected a kind of barrier between us. There is a distance between us and God. The message of Hebrews so far, though, is that this barrier, this barrier that makes a priest so necessary, a priest who would stand between us and God and bring the parties back together. This barrier, this, this gap that needed to be bridged has been bridged once and for all by Jesus. That in his perfect life, given in a perfect death, followed by a complete resurrection, everything that is necessary to, to break down the barriers between us and God has been done. God has come to us. He has pitched his tent among us. He is here now and available because of Jesus. And there is no more barrier there. We feel a barrier. And that's a problem in us. But the barrier doesn't exist anymore. One of the best images we've been using, the one that Hebrews goes to over and over for what this, this sin barrier looks like, is the image of the physical temple that the, the people in the Old Testament used to approach God. How this, this tent had all of these different chambers in it, and, and you had to go through these ritual washings to get to the next level, almost like levels in a video game, and that only some people had a status that was worthy enough to get them all the way in. And even once they were all the way in, they could only stay there for a little while, and they might die. People did die in there because God's presence was not safe. The whole thing was set up to show that, right? An image from my, my experience recently, it's just been kind of fresh on my mind. Maybe, maybe you guys will resonate with it. An, an image that works better for me than this temple of having to go through just layer after layer and the stress and the, the lack of peace and unease in it. 
is going through customs when you fly back into the U.S., right? I just did this not too long ago. And it seems like every time I, I fly back into the country, the process is longer. Does anybody else get that, that feeling? There's all of these layers that you have to go through. You have to, you have to fill out your little card on the plane, right, before you land. You fill out all your passport number and, and honor system, how much money you're bringing back in or what kind of goods you're bringing back in or whatever. Then you land and you've got to go to get that card stamped. You stand in this long passport control line with all the, the little you know, line dividers. And then you, you go through that and have to pick up your bags again before dropping your bags off again and having another card turned in and stamped. And then, and then after all that, you go through security again to get into the next terminal that you're going to use to go to your, to your domestic flight. You've got to go all the way through that process again. It's just like it never stops. So imagine... Imagine the temple as a sort of customs process that's never over. You never get all the way through the barriers. Imagine the stress, the unease, the lack of peace that you feel in all of those lines being constantly evaluated, sometimes severely, right, with those random checks that, they, that they're famous for. That, imagine that, that that is what's necessary for you to approach God. And now imagine... Thinking back to our customs example, that the barriers are gone. That you just get off the plane and walk in. Imagine, in other words, that you enter the country on the same terms that Barack Obama enters the country. Right? When, that, when Air Force One comes into Andrews Air Force Base, there is no customs line that he has to go through. He has a status that gains him instant and complete access. Now imagine that Obama takes you with him. Right? That you're his body man on the trip. And that you get to enjoy the same status that he has on coming into the country. No barriers. Now impose that on the process that Hebrews has been describing for us. Think of the temple, an old customs process that never ends. A sort of twilight zone where it's, just, it's, on a, it's on a loop and you're stuck in line. And now imagine that Jesus has removed all of those barriers once and for all and invites you to draw near to God because he has made you worthy. And now you get a sense of what the beauty of verse 19 is meant to communicate to us. Verse 19 says, Therefore, because of everything that Jesus has done, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, let us draw near to God in faith. God's presence is meant to give us Rest, peace, and joy. God himself is the green pasture. God himself is the still waters that never run dry and always leave us satisfied. God himself is what restores our soul, and he invites us to draw near. Now, here's what this means. If you are struggling to draw near to God, it is not because God is distant from you. You may feel that way, but he's not distant. He has come even putting on flesh. He took on a body to come close to us and to make it possible for us to come close to him. God is not distant. So if he feels distant, then there's another problem. What is it? Question two. Do you feel inadequate to approach God? Do you feel inadequate to approach God? I think that may be another barrier for a lot of us. 
Maybe you don't seek after God. You don't try to draw near to him because you don't think you can. You don't think you have what it takes. You're not worthy for it. Maybe you're intimidated by prayer. You don't really know what to say. Or you're intimidated by reading the Bible because it seems so inaccessible to you. It seems so full of weird stuff that that just leaves you feeling like you, you know less than you did when you sat down to read it. Maybe you don't think you can draw near to God. If that's where you are, then this passage reminds us of one of Hebrews' most encouraging and consistent messages. That, as verse 21 says, we have a great priest over the house of God. What I think this, this section, this little phrase is echoing is one of my favorite places in the letter. Back in Hebrews uh, chapter 7, verse 25, where we're told that because we have this great priest, we can now come to God through him. And the reason, it says, is that he lives to intercede for us. That's the wording in verse 25, that Jesus always lives to intercede for us. Do you get that? Jesus is alive again today for the purpose of helping us come to God. Now, here's what that means. That Jesus does not just bridge the gap or bring God close to us and make it possible for us to come to him. It means that he actually brings us all the way to him. The great high priest over the house of God is the one who is responsible for connecting the two parties that were at war with each other. And he gets to do that because he is worthy. He does have the skill set that's necessary. And that is the reason that he lives, to intercede for us, to bring us together. You know, all of us have known from experience what it is to want access to a group, to maybe a a, a network of friends, a clique, a professional society, whatever, that you don't belong to, but you wish you did, right? A group that that could give you the kind of, you know, maybe the professional opportunities or or the the joy of of community, the, the, the a network of people that are good quality that you want to be known with and by or known among. And you know that there's no reason anybody in that group should think of you as a worthy addition to the group? Have you guys all? I, I've certainly had groups like that that I wanted to and couldn't get into. Now imagine a member of that group who had full credentials, who was worthy of it, comes to you and pulls you in, sort of transfers their status to you. Now, I'm, I, here, here's, here's one example of that from my world, the world that I know that, that hopefully at least a few of you can connect with. It reminds me of the meat market that is these annual society meetings that graduate students have to go to with, along with their professors, their faculty. Uh, it is just like a sea of hu- people hungry for new opportunities, leeching onto guys who are, who are established in the field, who you, who, whose books you've read, you know, and you want to you be like them, and you want them to know who you are and to like you. And so you just see these guys. You can tell who they are because they have their name tags on, and there's like a little trail of people snaking after them wherever they go, trying to mob them when they stop for, at the water fountain or whatever. You go to these meetings and you know there are certain people that you want access to and they could give you some help on your project and they could help your career, right? You also know that there is absolutely nothing that you have that you can offer them. There is no reason that they should want to talk to you because you're useless to them, right? And you're afraid that if you say the wrong thing, then you ruin your chances with them forever, now, imagine that your advisor is a friend of theirs, right? That your advisor belongs to their club because your advisor has earned his or her way there, right? All the right publications, all the right committees chaired, 
whatever. And your advisor invites you to come up to this inapproachable scholar. And your advisor not only introduces you, but introduces your work to them. Because you're afraid that you're not going to represent it well, that you won't say the right thing. Imagine your advisor tells them about your work in his own words that are more articulate and compelling than what anything you could have done. And then says, treat this person like you treat me. It transfers his status, his cred to you. And if you can imagine that, even faintly, you're getting a faint image of what Jesus does for us as the great high priest over the house of God. What Jesus does is transfers his cred to us, but that is not it. That's what, that's what bridges the gap that separates us from God, but there's more. Jesus, remember chapter 7, verse 25, always lives to intercede for you. What that means is Jesus cleans up those prayers that you think aren't good enough to be heard by God. When you don't know what to say, Jesus is praying for you. And Jesus became like us in all respects. He became like his brothers in all respects so he would know what it's like to be us even better than we know what it's like to be ourselves. And with that perfect knowledge of us, he represents us to the Father. He speaks for us in words that we couldn't come up with. And all of his credibility is ours. If you feel inadequate to come to God because you don't know what to say, then you need to believe the truth that Jesus is the great priest over the house of God and he prays for you. Come to him. There's no reason not to. I've got to go a lot more quickly. Question number three is this. Do you want to draw near to God? Do you want to draw near to God? Verse 22 changes gears a little bit. What you might have noticed is that 19, 20, 21 are all giving us reasons that we can come to God. It starts with a therefore, because all this stuff is true, and then says, as if to repeat the point, since Jesus did this for us, since Jesus is who he is, therefore, let us draw near to God. Then verse 22 changes gears and starts to list off things that are true of those who come to God. Let us draw near to God with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with hearts that are sprinkled clean. Now we're, now we're getting a picture of what's true of those people who come to God and find him there waiting for them, right? Things that must be true of us. So we have a new set of questions to apply. Questions that ask us to consider our own hearts and whether something that's true of us is keeping us from God since we know that God isn't distant. He's come to us in Jesus. That's, what we, that's where we want to focus now. First one is this. Do you want to draw near to God? The first thing that verse 22 mentions is that those who draw near to God have a true heart, a true heart. I think that, that what that means should be clear enough to us. When we come to him, we got to come to him with a sincere desire to know and enjoy him we got to really want to be like him, to love what he loves, to be changed by him as we come into his presence. That's what scripture consistently says happens to those who come to God. So if we really want to come to him and get anything out of it, that's what we got to want to have happen. We want to be like him, to enjoy him and love him and love what he loves. But that means tearing our hearts away from anything else that might claim the throne of our hearts. That means that we've got to tear our hearts away from other things that we might love that aren't compatible with what God loves. If we want to draw near to him, it's to become like him. And that means to let go of all of these things. Because here's the truth, and this is consistent throughout all the Bible. 
God never makes us clean up our act before we come to him, right? That's what Jesus is for. But he will not let us come to him if we still want to hold on to the sins that should separate us from him. We don't have to clean up ourselves. Jesus makes us clean, but we have to want that cleanness. We have to, that's, that's the language of, that the Bible uses the word repentance to, to capture this. It, it's a turn of hearts, a changing of teams or allegiances, a, a switch from one Lord to another Lord. And, and unless we want God as Lord and King over our hearts, then we are not going to have success when we draw near to him. So the question you've got to ask yourself is, do you have a true heart? It's not like you have to clean it up on your own. The promise of the new covenant is that God is going to give us new hearts, that he will draw us to him and clean us up by the work of Jesus. There's help here. But, that's, but, but still, there's no, there's no place in the Bible that says we can come to God apart from repentance. Even if we know that his spirit is changing us and giving us that repentance, the bottom line is that this is what it, repentance is what it looks like for us to get to come to God. So have you repented? Is there something in your life that, that you're holding on to that maybe you haven't even recognized? And that is why it's hard for you to come to God. What we've seen is that to be in God's presence is to be purged of sin, to be made holy like him, and that that's why Jesus had to die. But to draw near to him means leaving behind other things that we love. And this is tough, right? <laughs> An understatement of the year, right? We pray for contentment, right? All of us want to be content. We want to have the kind of contentment that allows us to be satisfied in Jesus, even if we don't have the cushy job or the nice house in our favorite neighborhood or the comfortable bank account. We want to be able to live like Jesus is enough, to live without those things and be satisfied in him and his provision. We want a true heart, in other words. But if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of times, what we really want is contentment sort of theoretical, we could be content even if we didn't have those things, but then to still have them anyway, right? We want to have Jesus plus the stuff. Because we know that there are faithful Christians out there who are rich and comfortable, right? And they're faithful. We know that that happens for some people, that they've, they've figured out how to make that work and their hearts are still true. And that's what we want. What we want is the ability to be content without that stuff, but still have it. Our hearts aren't true. Recently, I was talking with Scott Patty, who pastors Grace Community Church in Brentwood, has been a huge influence on me. And we were talking about the challenge of of counseling men in a in a pornographic age. Right? He's obviously got a much bigger church than than we do, and has had many more years of experience on this. And he was sharing with me just some of his some of his experience and how, over time, what he's begun to do, where he where he in, immediately confronts people, is with this question. If you could live in a world in which you did not lust anymore, would you want to? Now think about that. Before you knee-jerk and give the church the answer, think about it. If you could live in a world where you would never lust again, where you would never look at a beautiful woman and objectify her or mentally undress her, if you would never do that again, never watch something that you know you probably shouldn't, would you want to live in that world? And be honest. To draw near to God, we have got to have a true heart. And if you're struggling to draw near to him, it could be that you need to repent of something that as of now you have still not repented of. Something that you're unwilling to let go. Can't you see why this would be a huge barrier to your relationship with him? 
Don't you, don't you know from experience what it is to be talking to somebody who seems initially interested in you and engages with you and wants to know you, but you can tell that maybe you're in a, in a bigger crowd, maybe you're at one of those meat market academic society meetings or whatever, and you can tell their eyes are always drifting away from you. They're always looking over your shoulder to see who else might come that might give them more, someone else that they might rather know than you. Haven't we all been in conversations like that? Maybe we've even been guilty of that in conversations. Can't you see that God, knowing our hearts perfectly and completely, knows when we are looking over his shoulder, so to speak, for whatever else might come along that will satisfy us more? Can't you see how that would keep us from closeness to him, from communion with him? If you, ha- if you are struggling to draw near to God, it could be that you don't draw near to him with a true heart and that you need to repent. What is it for you that you need to let go? Because of time, it was really crazy to think I was going to get through five questions this morning. Anyway, you guys probably saw that outline of the bulletin and you knew that was not going to happen. Uh, because of time, I want to skip number four because the next command that we come to next week in verse 23 is basically a repeat of the same information. The question is, if you're, if you're drawing near to God and you're struggling, do you believe in him and his promises? Are you really trusting that he is who he claims to be? Or are you maybe held back by doubt it might be intellectual, but also an issue of your heart. The answer for me is that, that is, is always a yes. And I've got some things I really want to say on this point, but verse 23's command is, let us hold fast our confession. It is a, a command to those of us who doubt, to confront our doubt head on. So I'm going to save that material for next week. This is your teaser to make sure you guys all make it back. And I want to finish with question five. Here's the question. Does the thought of God make you ashamed? Does the thought of God make you ashamed? Verse 22 says, let us draw near with a, with a true heart, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. And there's some disagreement about what these phrases mean, about whether there's an allusion to baptism here or not. Best, the best arguments I've read are that, that both of those phrases, heart sprinkled clean, bodies washed with true water, are, are actually a reference to the promise of a new covenant in Ezekiel chapter 34. Or is it actually it's chapter 36? The promise in Ezekiel 36 is this. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will give you a new heart, a heart not of stone but of flesh. What he's alluding to here is what he's been talking about for the last couple of chapters, that now... That new covenant promise of what God would do for us has happened through Jesus and that you can be washed clean. And what he's saying here in this, in this verse, verse 22, what he's talking about is not really so much that now God sees us as clean. That's true. He's already said that. What he's saying here is that we should see us as clean. What he's talking about is a conscience, which is our own sense of having done wrong. That a conscien- our consciences are stained, that we carry around this sense of failure, and that Jesus' work has, is, is meant to wash us clean from that so that when we come to God, we don't carry the baggage of feeling like we don't deserve him, that we, we begin to see ourselves in the way that he sees us, which is through Jesus, through the, the washing that Jesus has provided us with. If you're struggling to draw near to God, it could be that you have been unwilling to let go of your past failure that you've been unwilling to see your conscience wiped clean, that you have been unwilling to forget what God, 
through Christ has already forgotten. Surely you know what a stained conscience does to a relationship, the walls that it throws up. Surely you know what it is to have deeply wronged somebody, to carry around the sense that you've wronged them, and to try to relate to them through that sense. Just to return to my previous example, you know what it is to have wronged somebody. Imagine that you're addicted to pornography, like we were talking about a minute ago, that, and that you, you have to relate to your spouse through the sense that you carry around that you have wronged them or failed them. That you have to, to wake up feeling dirty and ashamed, unworthy of their affection, that, that when you see them, it reminds you of what you've done to fail them, right? So that even seeing them brings back the stain on your conscience. And now try to relate in a healthy way to them through that. It just doesn't work. It, it, it destroys relationships to carry around the sense that you failed the other person in your relationship. And the same thing, even if, you don't, even if you've never labeled it as such or recognized it, the same thing could be hurting your relationship with God. You try to draw near to him and you can't because you're not willing to let go of what you've done to fail him, of your infidelity to him. But here's the message of Hebrews and of this verse. If you trust in Jesus and not in yourself, then you are wiped clean once and for all. You don't need to carry the memory of that failure because God does not carry around the memory of that failure. And you can relate to him in freedom and in joy because everything is on the table and everything is wiped clean. When God looks at you, he sees Jesus, and there is no shame in that. By all means, you need to repent. If, you, if there's something you should repent for, we've already said that. Repent of it. But in Christ, God remembers your sin no more. So why should you? Friends, I don't know which of these questions you need to really connect with this morning. Because I imagine all of us struggle to come near to God for different reasons. But somewhere in here is a word for you. Somewhere in here, there is a truth about Jesus and what he's accomplished that confronts you where you struggle and calls you to give it up because Jesus is enough, calls you to enjoy the relationship that cost Jesus his life for you to enjoy, a relationship apart from which you will never be full or complete. So draw near to him. Draw near to him. Father, Thank you that you have made a way, a way that we couldn't have come up with, a way that we could never have even thought of. It's so remarkable, so unexpected, that the one who has been sinned against has taken on the burden of making it possible for us to be healed. This is an incredible love beyond all human love. It is supernatural, and we want it. We want to claim it and live from it. We want to draw near to you, to know what that does, to what that feels like, what the, how that energizes us. So would you please, having removed once and for all the barrier that, is, that our sin caused now, <coughs> would you pull us through our priest to you and give us what he's won for us? That's our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.